The Story with No Ending, from Chapter 2 of Following the Equator, A Journey Around the World by Mark Twain. Preface to Geo Marin In the diverse landscape of American literature, Mark Twain emerges as a master storyteller, his work resonating with wit and profound insight. The story with no ending stands as a testament to his ability to blend humor with a keen understanding of the human psyche. This piece is particularly notable for demonstrating Twain's literary craftsmanship, merging his characteristic humor with an in-depth exploration of human experiences. This narrative invites readers aboard a metaphorical ship sailing through the vast sea of human imagination. Twain crafts a game of incomplete stories, challenging the audience to conjure their conclusions. This innovative approach emphasizes that the essence of a story lies not just in its ending, but in the journey and the possibilities it unfolds. The characters of John Brown and Mary Taylor are portrayed with a realism that reflects the complexities of real-life individuals. Their dilemmas and emotions resonate with authenticity, serving as mirrors to our own experiences and aspirations. Twain's choice to leave their story without a definitive ending is not merely a literary device. It invites the reader to engage with the narrative and imagine the myriad directions in which this simple tale could evolve. This story's lack of a traditional conclusion prompts reflection on the nature of storytelling and the role of the audience in shaping a narrative. Like his stories, Twain subtly reminds us that life often consists of unresolved threads, each holding potential for numerous outcomes. In Twain's skilled hands, the absence of a conventional ending becomes a catalyst for imagination. The story with no ending is a profound reflection on the art of storytelling. It encourages exploration of less-traveled paths, contemplation of endings yet to be written, and appreciation for the potential in the unwritten. While lacking a conventional ending, the story is complete in its capacity to inspire, provoke thought, and ignite wonder. As readers embrace this narrative, they are invited to appreciate the beauty of the unfinished and the power of a story to not just narrate an event, but to ignite a myriad of narratives in the minds of those who engage with it. Geo Marin John Brown, aged 31, good, gentle, bashful, timid, lived in a quiet village in Missouri. He was superintendent of the Presbyterian Sunday School. It was but a humble distinction, still. It was his only official one, and he was modestly proud of it and was devoted to its work and its interests. The extreme kindliness of his nature was recognized by all. In fact, people said that he was made entirely out of good impulses and bashfulness, that he could always be counted upon for help when it was needed, and for bashfulness both when it was needed and when it wasn't. Mary Taylor, 23, modest, sweet, winning, and in character and person beautiful was all in all to him. And he was very nearly all in all to her. She was wavering, his hopes were high, her mother had been in opposition from the first, but she was wavering too, he could see it. She was being touched by his warm interest in her two charity protégés and by his contributions toward their support. These were two forlorn and aged sisters who lived in a log hut in a lonely place up a crossroad four miles from Mrs. Taylor's farm. One of the sisters was crazy and sometimes a little violent, but not often. At last the time seemed ripe for a final advance, and Brown gathered his courage together and resolved to make it. He would take along a contribution of double the usual size and win the mother over, with her opposition annulled, the rest of the conquest would be sure and prompt. 
he took to the road in the middle of a placid Sunday afternoon in the soft Missourian summer, and he was equipped properly for his mission. He was clothed all in white linen, with a blue ribbon for a necktie, and he had on dressy tight boots. His horse and buggy were the finest that the livery stable could furnish. The lap robe was of white linen, it was new, and it had a hand-worked border that could not be rivaled in that region for beauty and elaboration. When he was four miles out on the lonely road and was walking his horse over a wooden bridge, his straw hat blew off and fell in the creek, and floated down and lodged against a bar. He did not quite know what to do. He must have the hat, that was manifest, but how was he to get it? Then he had an idea. The roads were empty, nobody was stirring. Yes, he would risk it. He led the horse to the roadside, and set it to cropping the grass. Then he undressed and put his clothes in the buggy, petted the horse a moment to secure its compassion and its loyalty, then hurried to the stream. He swam out, and soon had the hat. When he got to the top of the bank, the horse was gone. His legs almost gave way under him. The horse was walking leisurely along the road. Brown trotted after it, saying, Whoa, whoa, there's a good fellow. But whenever he got near enough to chance a jump for the buggy, the horse quickened its pace a little and defeated him. And so this went on, the naked man perishing with anxiety and expecting every moment to see people come in sight. He tagged on and on, imploring the horse, beseeching the horse, till he had left a mile behind him and was closing up on the tailor premises. Then at last he was successful and got into the buggy. He flung on his shirt, his necktie, and his coat, then reached for, but he was too late. He sat suddenly down and pulled up the lap robe, for he saw someone coming out of the gate, a woman, he thought. He wheeled the horse to the left and struck briskly up the crossroad. It was perfectly straight and exposed on both sides, but there were woods and a sharp turn three miles ahead, and he was very grateful when he got there. As he passed around the turn he slowed down to a walk and reached for his tear, too late again. He had come upon Mrs. Enderby, Mrs. Glossop, Mrs. Taylor, and Mary. They were on foot and seemed tired and excited. They came at once to the buggy and shook hands, and all spoke at once, and said eagerly and earnestly how glad they were that he was come, and how fortunate it was. And Mrs. Enderby said impressively, It looks like an accident, his coming at such a time, but let no one profane it with such a name. He was sent, sent from on high. They were all moved, and Mrs. Glossop said in an awed voice, Sarah Enderby, you never said a truer word in your life. This is no accident. It is a special providence. He was sent. He is an angel, an angel as truly as ever angel was, an angel of deliverance. I say angel, Sarah Enderby, and will have no other word. Don't let anyone ever say to me again that there's no such thing as special providences, for if this isn't one, let them account for it that can. I know it's so, said Mrs. Taylor fervently. John Brown, I could worship you. I could go down on my knees to you. Didn't something tell you? Didn't you feel that you were sent? I could kiss the hem of your lip robe. He was not able to speak. He was helpless with shame and fright. Mrs. Taylor went on. Why, just look at it all around, Julia Glossop. Any person can see the hand of providence in it. Here at noon, what do we see? We see the smoke rising. I speak up and say, that's the old people's cabin afire, 
didn't I, Julia Glossop? The very words you said, Nancy Taylor. I was as close to you as I am now, and I heard them. You may have said hut instead of cabin, but in substance it's the same. And you were looking pale, too. Pale? I was that pale that if, why, you just compare it with this laprobe. Then the next thing I said was, Mary Taylor, tell the hired man to rig up the team, we'll go to the rescue. And she said, Mother, don't you know you told him he could drive to see his people and stay over Sunday? And it was just so, I declare for it, I had forgotten it. Then, said I, we'll go afoot, and go we did, and found Sarah Enderby on the road. And we all went together, said Mrs. Enderby, and found the cabin set fire to and burnt down by the crazy one, and the poor old things so old and feeble that they couldn't go afoot. And we got them to a shady place and made them as comfortable as we could, and began to wonder which way to turn to find some way to get them conveyed to Nancy Taylor's house. And I spoke up and said, Now, what did I say? Didn't I say, Providence will provide? Why, sure as you live, so you did. I had forgotten it. So had I, said Mrs. Glossop and Mrs. Taylor. But you certainly said it. Now, wasn't that remarkable? Yes, I said it. And then we went to Mr. Mosley's, two miles, and all of them were gone to the camp meeting over on Stony Fork. And then we came all the way back, two miles, and then here, another mile and providence has provided. You see it yourselves. They gazed at each other awestruck, and lifted their hands and said in unison, It's perfectly wonderful. And then, said Mrs. Glossop, what do you think we had better do? Let Mr. Brown drive the old people to Nancy Taylor's one at a time, or put both of them in the buggy, and him lead the horse? Brown gasped. Now then, that's a question, said Mrs. Enderby. You see, we are all tired out, and any way we fix it, it's going to be difficult. For if Mr. Brown takes both of them, at least one of us must go back to help him, for he can't load them into the buggy by himself, and they so helpless. That is so, said Mrs. Taylor. It doesn't look, oh, how would this do? One of us drive there with Mr. Brown, and the rest of you go along to my house and get things ready. I'll go with him. He and I together can lift one of the old people into the buggy then drive her to my house and... But who will take care of the other one? said Mrs. Enderby. We mustn't leave her there in the woods alone, you know, especially the crazy one. There and back is eight miles, you see. They had all been sitting on the grass beside the buggy for a while now, trying to rest their weary bodies. They fell silent a moment or two, and struggled in thought over the baffling situation. Then Mrs. Enderby brightened and said, I think I've got the idea now. You see, we can't walk any more. Think what we've done. Four miles there, two to Mosley's, is six, then back to here, nine miles since noon, and not a bite to eat. I declare I don't see how we've done it, and as for me, I am just famishing. Now, somebody's got to go back to help Mr. Brown. There's no getting mound that, but whoever goes has got to ride, not walk. So my idea is this, one of us to ride back with Mr. Brown, then ride to Nancy Taylor's house with one of the old people, leaving Mr. Brown to keep the other old one company. You ought to go now to Nancy's and rest and wait. Then one of you drive back and get the other one, and drive her to Nancy's, and Mr. Brown walk. Splendid, they all cried. Oh, that will do. That will answer perfectly. And they all said that Mrs. Enderby had the best head for planning in the company, 
and they said that they wondered that they hadn't thought of this simple plan themselves. They hadn't meant to take back the compliment, good simple souls, and didn't know they had done it. After a consultation it was decided that Mrs. Enderby should drive back with Brown, she being entitled to the distinction because she had invented the plan. Everything now being satisfactorily arranged and settled, the ladies rose, relieved and happy, and brushed down their gowns, and three of them started homeward. Mrs. Enderby set her foot on the buggy step and was about to climb in when Brown found a remnant of his voice and gasped out. Please, Mrs. Enderby, call them back. I am very weak. I can't walk. I can't indeed. Why, dear Mr. Brown, you do look pale. I am ashamed of myself that I didn't notice it sooner. Come back, all of you. Mr. Brown is not well. Is there anything I can do for you, Mr. Brown? I'm real sorry. Are you in pain? No, madam, only weak. I am not sick, but only just weak. Lately, not long, but just lately. The others came back and poured out their sympathies and commiserations and were full of self-reproaches for not having noticed how pale he was. And they at once struck out a new plan and soon agreed that it was by far the best of all. They would all go to Nancy Taylor's house and see to Brown's needs first. He could lie on the sofa in the parlor, and while Mrs. Taylor and Mary took care of him, the other two ladies would take the buggy and go and get one of the old people, and leave one of themselves with the other one, and... By this time, without any solicitation, they were at the horse's head and were beginning to turn him around. The danger was imminent, but Brown found his voice again and saved himself, he said. But, ladies, you are overlooking something which makes the plan impracticable. You see, if you bring one of them home, and one remains behind with the other, there will be three persons there when one of you comes back for that other, for someone must drive the buggy back, and three can't come home in it. They all exclaimed, Why, surely that is so! And they were all perplexed again. Dear, dear, what can we do? said Mrs. Glossop. It is the most mixed-up thing that ever was. The fox and the goose and the corn and things, oh dear, they are nothing to it. They sat wearily down once more to further torture their tormented heads for a plan that would work. Presently, Mary offered a plan. It was her first effort. She said, I am young and strong and am refreshed now. Take Mr. Brown to our house and give him help. You see how plainly he needs it. I will go back and take care of the old people. I can be there in twenty minutes. You can go on and do what you first started to do. Wait on the main road at our house until somebody comes along with a wagon, then send and bring away the three of us. You won't have to wait long. The farmers will soon be coming back from town now. I will keep old Polly patient and cheered up. The crazy one doesn't need it. This plan was discussed and accepted. It seemed the best that could be done in the circumstances, and the old people must be getting discouraged by this time. Brown felt relieved and was deeply thankful. Let him once get to the main road and he would find a way to escape. Then Mrs. Taylor said, The evening chill will be coming on pretty soon, and those poor old burnt-out things will need some kind of covering. Take the lap robe with you, dear. Very well, mother. I will. She stepped to the buggy and put out her hand to take it. From everyone at Geo's World, we hope you enjoyed this classic short story from Mark Twain.